Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. My name is Erin Molino bailey I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the CEO and owner at Cognitive Behavior Institute. This week, we have two very special guests, me and Kevin. <laughs> we are doing uh, an episode this week uh, with Kevin and I, where we are answering some questions that a lot of our listeners have sent to us regarding uh, starting a private practice or interest in working for a private practice. And so we thought it would be a great time to kind of go through some of these questions and share our answers uh, with y'all. So we hope that uh, you aren't disappointed, but we think it's going to be a fun episode. So I think it's very timely. I think you hear a lot of people going into private practice. Uh, We're going through some pivot points here at CBI with some new software that's going just spectacular. And all all because of Erin, she'll kind of talk about the efficiencies she does. But I know there's there's things we can get into here really about, you know, what's a good fit for who, because there's different ways you can go into private practice, right? You have the individual method uh, where you're just all on your own, uh, no one to fall back on, which can be very scary. You have the co-op kind of way of doing it where you get a collaborative or co-op together where you get therapists all independent, but trying to use their financial synergies to kind of bring uh, supports in, so to share the cost and then working under a group practice uh, which for many uh, tends to be the, the route just because of the wonderful support uh, that you can get. When I mean wonderful support, at least I'm taking a vision of us and what that looks like, particularly Erin. She's really d- developed her uh, personal branding at CBI for what's expectations, which she's always trying to live up to. Mount Everest, Kevin. The expectations are Mount right. Everest. <laughs> right? We know we're always going to be walking up that hill or that mountain. We're never going to get to the top and that's normal. It's the way it's supposed to be. Yes, yes. Um, I think let's start with um, one of the questions is has to do with um, having an entrepreneurial spirit or how do you know if you're going to be good at being an entrepreneur? Um, owning a business is not for the faint of heart. Uh, can you share a little bit with our listeners as to what it takes um, and what they may want to think about um, before going into business for themselves? Sure. And I think you have a lot to add to this too. So please chime in. Sure. You know, I think a few things we, uh, Aaron and myself, mm-hmm. the practice back in 2014. Uh, and is that right? 2014. Yeah. I think 2014. Back. And I started out by myself, just me, myself and my mom with a heavy New York accent answering the phone in New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that lasted about two weeks because the growth started very quickly. But but that said is, I think really what I'm referring to is logistics, right? So really thinking ahead of time to put the planning in so that it is just, it's overwhelming to be in business. There's lots of things and risks that come as a result of that. And when you're a solo practitioner or a solo owner group, pra- uh, group practice, uh, meaning you're one owner, all those risks are financial, legal, those all fall on you, even though others are working for you. And then I know, you know, the discussions of 1099 versus W-2. Uh, and then the mindset, you know, how do you, what do you want out of a private practice? Is that good for you? Is it, I don't want to work under anybody, uh, kind of, I need to go my own lane. And what does that look like? Is that own lane going to be successful? 
I think the pandemic and the demand increase has made that more likely to happen. Is it that I want to do really well, have really good support uh, and have that feel of being independent, but also working within a group practice, kind of the model CBI has and what you're going to hear that flavor over and over again, because we do believe it's unique in its own way. Uh, or, or, or go another path of the collaborative uh, kind of view. Uh, but, you know, I think there's a lot that takes to growing into it. I was lucky and married up. So financially, it wasn't an issue for me in the very beginning because uh, I didn't, you know, the those that know CBI, it's, it's quite the rapid growth. And I didn't really get paid the first two years. I kind of reinvested. So literally two years in order to, I think, which was helpful for CBI to be where it is today is to be able to throw all those resources out reinvesting back in human uh, humans, which are the biggest factor and learned a lot with advertising, what I feel is helpful and not helpful. How do you market yourself and separate yourself as a practice and build confidence in the community? Uh, other referral sources so that you're resilient, not dependent upon any one uh, referral source uh, so that uh, you know things can happen. And how do you think about what you can't think about? Really the things that have always gotten us at CBI, the things we haven't thought about. And I can tell you with our large group, we think about everything, at least we think so. Uh, and so those are the unknowables that uh, if you're not, if you're, so if you're a personality, you want, you don't like uncertainty, you don't like conflict, uh, you don't like to put yourself out there, you don't like to be the center of attention, you don't like to hold people accountable, uh, you don't like any financial risk, legal risk, probably solo practice, group practice or collaborative practice as an owner is not the way to go. So, Erin, uh, any other pieces of that? Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you that uh, in that everything you just talked about. I, I, I want to kind of, again, echo the piece of having that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I feel like a lot of times people don't necessarily um, know what goes into owning a business. There's um, doing your profession, but then there's also countless hours um, that you're not you know, going to, that aren't billable, so to speak, that you are going to be spent. Um, and one of the key things I think is getting good people in those positions. That becomes a double-edged sword because you're only able to do that if you're reinvesting, like you had mentioned, back into your business and not taking a salary. It's going to be very difficult to be able to hire, so to speak, um, good people on the administrative side until you've grown quite a caseload or business uh, on, you know, with your therapy practice. So it's kind of like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it you're going to, you know, start uh, off by yourself and do all this and, and really, you know, make sure that your personality and your risk tolerance and your mental health is, <laughs> is a good fit sure. for this? No, or sure. are you going to financially be able to, um, you know, sink all of your profits uh, into others for the growth of the future or for to build your practices brand, so to speak, um, because that does take time, energy and money. And, um, you know, one person doing everything, I think, really leads to burnout um, as we've kind of efficiencies too, Aaron, I would say, and integrated everything. Yes. Having more than one, you know, you can only have so many great conversations with yourself um, before you need a sounding board or you need somebody to take the reins on certain things um, to get a good perspective as to, you know, what is working and what is not working. Um, there are ideas and efficiencies and concepts out there that you may not even know exist 
unless you bring in somebody from the outside to, or another person to help you. So um, those are all, I think. Aaron, even a good example, think about telehealth, right? So right. we're involved in many boards on Facebook and other support groups where people come together to get ideas. And the breadth of ideas that you see out there and opinions and interpretation are so broad. And one of the things that I always get concerned about is oftentimes we can take those at face value, uh, all good intentions by everybody, hands down, there's good intentions. But at least from our experience, a lot of the time, the information is, not, not, is not accurate and people will come back and speak with an authoritative perspective about how you're wrong on that post. And it's yeah. kind of like, so the advice I'm given is, is ultimately we don't make decisions unless we have it in writing at, at CBI. Yeah, I would not, um... I would not bank your business and everything you create on Facebook advice um, unless you have it in writing from a confirmed source, whether it's an insurance company, an attorney, an accountant, you know, things like that. That's how we operate at CBI. We kind of have this mantra, like we don't like to live in the gray. Um, and you know, the black and white thinking is something that sometimes we challenge ourselves to, you know, to kind of think outside the box, but we always want to make sure that we are clear and we are not putting ourselves into a situation that in the future could come back to bite us. Let's even, let's even get away from legals, make that concrete. Just even going back to telehealth again, cause it's so uh, precedent sure. is if, uh, you know, when you read the, uh, insurance X. Mm -hmm. says, hey, they're going to cover it or may not cover it. But then, and it's by this date. And then suddenly you're like, okay, it's going to be covered. And then the date happens. And then suddenly it's not covered. You didn't have that discussion. You have to go and get that that money either from your client or eat it, right? And right. so how many clients have that insurance? How much money is that? And is it worth it? And so who? So one is if you're a solo practitioner, how do you even go find that information uh, to go do that? Who go collects it after that? Because you have so much, you already have so much on your time. And so where one is just a small uh, operationalizing that in real life, how that could be a real, real trouble and create dislocations and a therapeutic alliance because of that. Uh, and actually when you have a dislocation and a therapeutic alliance, particularly over finances, it's been shown to increase your risk for getting sued. So things to be concerned about, but also just a really kind of a speckle of salt about some of the things you have to think about when into private practice from a liability perspective and things that you have to do both money, time and energy. And, there is a ton of them that you haven't even thought about. And so talking with people uh, is, uh, that know what they're doing is gonna be really important. Yeah, no, I think that's a great piece of advice. I think they're talking to others who have established a practice that, uh, and, and maybe you're asking like, well, how do I know someone who's established a practice that is legit or that is on the up and up or that operates you know, to that degree? So I think you have to ask questions um, regarding, you know, their team of people and how, you know, their relationships with different insurance companies, with different leadership at different um, insurance companies and different health health um, networks within your uh, area of where you are in the U.S., um, especially when it comes to networking with relationships for referrals, those kinds of things. Um I know that specifically one thing that, and Kevin, you touched on this, is the W-2 and the 1099. Um, and this is something that we hear a lot of, that people have 1099 independent contractors hired 
through their business because there is a significant savings in things like the payroll tax and you know once you hit a certain number offering health care and all types of expenses um, that you have to you know that is more uh, it makes more sense to maybe not have to um, spend you know money to cover those expenses. Um, we have always found that um, consulting a good legitimate CPA on what exactly the roles that those individuals at your practice are doing. If you are controlling or giving them any sort of boundary or any sort of, uh, you know, strict guidance on how they can perform. Where you work, who you work job. with, what modalities to use, when you get office space, uh, have to, you know, that you have to attend supervision, you know, monthly that you things like that. When you start controlling that, people are no longer an independent contractor. And, you know, that is actually one thing that we think has led to our success at CBI. That quality of having employees and not independent contractors allows us to, you know, make sure that the bar that we set is high and continues to be followed and, you know, achieved. And we're able to, um, we're able to continue to encourage people to follow in the path that we have set with specifics, because that is what we think is the recipe for a successful practice. And, and I think what leads into that is not only having the recipe, but right, but having the right people. I think one of the things where CBI has just been a magnet for, and I think it has to do a lot with, uh, whether it be Erin and her attitude, uh, uh, Kaylee, uh, Jonathan, uh, and, and, the, and the rest of the administrative team and clinical team, is just as a certain personality where these people are just awesome. They have this spirit of collaboration, this spirit of wanting to be at the top of their game, their spirit to be inquisitive, their spirit to be supportive, uh, to receive feedback in a way uh, that I think just creates synergies that is unmatched. And so where I'm going with that is, so you go and set whatever decision you want, but how do you hire the right people? That's a whole, so Kevin, that, that's actually a question that one of our listeners um, yeah. asked. And basically they said, you know, I'm thinking about hire, starting a private practice and I want to bring on some other employees. So how do I know who's going to be a good fit? Um, I think you as the owner um, have to have certain standards and you have to know what those are and you have to specifically make sure that the people that you're bringing on align under those. Um, what, right, your mission. What, what is the right mentioning? vision, the right personality. Um, it goes beyond education. Um, we know that someone could have a great uh, CV and could be, you know, really highly educated, but you come to find that maybe their ethics aren't what your ethics stand for as your business. And, you know, as an employee or as a um, contractor of your business, they could, this could get you into some sticky situations. So there's definitely a lot to consider. And I would say the interview process really has a lot to do both clinically, how, you know, your, you have clinicians that you feel that are representing your brand and you well, like Kevin mentions at the top of their game, but then also um, those that have the personality that are excited for innovation and thinking outside the box and, you know, creating, creating new things. We found that, that those are some of the most successful individuals who we've hired at CBI, um, really energetic, just bring a passion for what they do and for working with others. You know, and those are nobody all at CBI. I think two things. 
One is I know they can do it, whatever they, they idea that comes up, they can bring it to fruition. And I have, have no problem sending my family member to them, everybody. And so I think, uh, I think, and I that's mean good, that- That's a good thermometer. Yeah, it really is. I mean, that's, I, I want someone, and you can hear my accent here, my mother could go, to, could go see here from New York, right? So if she needed to see somebody, I'd want her to see it. Or what is her experience like uh, from an administrative to get things? Now, I will say we have always been great at this. Uh, and what we're doing is just finding more efficiencies with it. Of course, there's always intricacies of, uh, of a pandemic that can kind of uh, make it a little bit more challenging for clinicians and non-clinicians. And we're all experiencing that. Anybody watching this knows whether you've gone to a restaurant, a retail store, or anywhere. It's just there's a lot more on everybody's plate. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, the high standards here has just been great, although no one's perfect and we don't expect that. But I have the, we have a dream team. Uh, and so I think uh, pandemic, uh, you know, understanding that, but still, how do you keep the quality? And I think Erin and her team, as far as the clinical team, has really done, despite the challenges of the pandemic and maybe a new software system, have really done a spectacular job with doing the best anybody can. And I think of that situation. And so being humble as an owner, being humble as a coworker, realizing people are going to have bad days and not be their typical selves. And so you could take it personal. Uh, or you can say, hey, they just need time to vent or, hey, that's uncharacteristic. Let me give them time and see if they don't, if they readjust. If they don't, one of the other things I think is having open communication that we're very good at. Absolutely. When there's something that's off, any one of us can question the other one and say, hey, what's going on? It's not like, hey, what's your problem, dude? It's really like, it's you know, I see you're struggling. You seem upset or this doesn't seem like it feels right, distant. Let's talk about that. I think that's a big deal. It makes the team much closer and more efficient over time. What has been your experience, Aaron? No, I completely agree with you. And the fact that we can sense that amongst our staff when something unusual or, you know, um, comes into play, I think really speaks to how important it is to kind of be on the same page with the people who you work with. Um, this, you know, I, I don't know if I've worked places before in my life prior to CBI where, you know, you're kind of just like one of many and you kind of just blend in and you kind of just, you know, go to work every day, sit in your cubicle, see your friends at work, you know, go home. When there is um, this, we, we call it our CBI family and that family atmosphere of really knowing, um, you know, the ins and the outs, you can sense when, when things are off or wrong. And I feel like that's always been something that I've loved about CBI because um, I feel like for, for any business owner, retention is, is huge when you have that because your employees feel value. They feel like you care about them, uh, which you truly do. So not only are they feeling it, but it's actually, it actually exists. Um, you know, the pandemic, I think, has really changed the way, you know, even more so working environments. Like we put a lot of energy and time into feeling and staying connected even though we couldn't all physically be in the office together. We, we weren't all enjoying, you know, our catered lunches like we would normally do in the conference room in the kitchen area. We weren't able to do live trainings for CE events. You know, we weren't able to have as many parties, you know, um, for holidays that we would with all of our staff and their significant others. I think um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot that goes into creating that kind of family atmosphere keeping, making people 
feel like they're irreplaceable, making them feel like they um, are so valued and bring, you know, specific uh, qualities. It's genuine, right? Because we feel- and That's what I mean. When I say feel like, I mean, like it actually exists. So like, it's true. Like, you know, this is, you know, this is actually, we're not just making you feel something that's not really there. Like this is actually truly how we feel. Um, and so I think that it's really important to be able to connect to your employees like that. Um, and it's not that everybody has to be in everybody else's personal business. Uh, we definitely are good with boundaries when it comes to that, but it's that extra set, extra sense of, you know, knowing when someone's off, knowing how to help, knowing, you know, if they want to talk about it and it can be about good things or bad things. Um, you know, that's one thing that we go out of our way to kind of highlight, people when they're doing just exceptional work, but we also, you know, want to touch base with them if we feel like something's not right, because we want it, we truly care and we want to know how we can help. So um, building that kind of culture with your staff and your employees, I think is really, really critical. Um, and Kevin, let's talk, we had another person ask a question about, and this one I know is one of your favorite topics to talk about the whole, should I dip my toe in the water part-time private practice? Should I jump in? with two feet and quit my job and go out on my own. So um, share with us a little bit about your thoughts on this and you know your kind of calculation working backwards as to how you kind of can help somebody determine financially, you know, if they might be ready for that. Yeah. No, you know, I always tell people I'm always a conservative guy when I approach kind of business and, and what you do things. So I I would suggest, you know, I, I jumped in fully when I got, so when I got my LSW, I jumped out, uh, started my practice and it, I folded it in six months. Uh, it didn't work well. I, so my one thing I think is experience. Experience is very much needed. We already talked about the difficulties of private practice. Uh, and I think it's even that much difficult, someone coming right out of school uh, or just licensed, just because of all the economic, business, clinical and legal ethical issues that come up. There's just no way you're prepared. School can't prepare you for that. And I think that's the riskiest piece, that, that cluster of being, being an individual. So that's why I think really going to a mental health clinic and getting established there, getting really, finding out who are the people that are really strong with ethics, who's really strong clinically, who's really strong business-wise. So you have people to lean on uh, or whether community. it's yeah. Yeah, a community, community of support. You really do need that because we do have that. And that's where I think our strength comes from. But for me, I look back, I'm like, wow, I was just really lucky that in running run into any landmines. So I would say dip your toe in for different ways. Uh, I think one is kind of the legal ethical. The other one is the business sense is like, how much do you need to survive for your standard of living that you currently have? What do you want it to be? Right? Then you kind of have to figure out the math problem behind that is. And so I think that could be its own episode, Aaron. But you know, I think what you have to do is calculate us. Well, I will actually do that. But from a very high level is, is what's going to be your overhead for the year? How many days off do you want? How many days a week do you want to work and how many clients do you want to see a week? And basically just do the math and kind of get that. What do, how many clients do you have to see a week at what price point? With those questions, you can find those out. Uh, and so I think once you have that, then you have an idea about how much I need to make in order to sustain my current standard of living or to increase it. How does that work with my current job? So you can figure out, do you go part-time at your current job? Do you wean out? Do you wean up? Uh, you know, some practices do a little bit more creative things, which we have to get people in. We really try to be supportive. And there's been lots of challenges from like insurances once allowing credentialing. And then suddenly once you hire people, they take the credentialing away. So there's a lot of things you're not going to think about from a very high level. I think that's an area 
to think about. And one of the things I think me and Aaron love to do, particularly me, I have a little bit more time than Aaron currently, is, is just talking to people about private practice, you know, and all the intricacies. And I love talking to people. So if anybody sees this, they want to talk to me about how that formula in a little bit more in depth way, or just any questions, even going beyond, you know, I love spending my Mondays on 30 minute calls with individuals in private practice, starting a private practice, thinking to start a private practice, a group practice. I love helping out. So feel free to reach out, no cost, 30 minutes. Uh, I really love that doing that. And I think we can get more into details because there's a lot of uniqueness to everybody's situation. There is. And you also, I also want to mention, don't forget to account for a no-show rate because that can really bite you if you don't do that. Um, you know, we typically somewhere around 20% no-show if you think it's going to be less or more depending on the in-person virtual, you know, your, your clientele. Um, make sure you take that into account because you don't want to be 20% short on your uh, bills for the month if you are, you know, doing apples to apples. So it's true because those show rates are different from private insurance to self-pay to Medicaid and Medicare. And, you know, a typical Aaron's talking about 80, 80% show rate. That's very conservative. But when we use numbers, we use conservative numbers, although we know it's higher than that, the show rate. But those are things just in business you want to always build in cushion to your calculations because otherwise, 10% even of 100,000 is 10 grand. And how impactful can that be? for someone supporting their family. So you don't want to, you don't want to have those unknowables. And so that's where we can be helpful with that. Absolutely. Another question that we got that I think is really good. That's kind of related to what we just talked about is someone asked, how do you gain private paying clients in a state where most people are mostly Medicaid insured um, and the reimbursement is much lower. And I think that uh, this is an important question because you need, I don't think, sometimes creativity is not what you need in order to, to find your way through a problem. Sometimes there just is a market dictated by the area where you are located and you have to be, you have to accept that and you have to know your clients, know your area. Um, so for instance, if you are physically located in a part of a state where most people have a Medicaid uh, insurance and you're not satisfied with those um, with those rates, it is likely that it is not going to be easy for you to just magically, you know, get a large caseload of of self-paying clients at two hundred dollars an hour. Um, you have to kind of know your region, know your territory, know your clients, know your insurance. But one thing that I think um, you could be creative about is if you are licensed. Uh, when you are licensed in a state, you can practice. Uh, virtually in that state. So, you know, you can break down barriers as far as people located in different parts of the state. It may be something to consider if you want to do some marketing, say for instance, you know, in Western PA where we're, where we're located, um, it's very insurance-based. Everybody pretty much has insurance, a lot of commercial insurance, everybody uses their insurance. There are some clients that, you know, cash pay and private pay, um, but the bulk of our clients are insurance. Uh, insurance You're is talking like, like 98%. <laughs> You know, Kevin from being somewhere, uh, from being in New York, you know, they're not really insurance based. Uh, private pay is something that is, you know, just as common as insurance is here. We found that, um, but my, my, my point is, you know, somewhere like Pittsburgh, you know, which is, is insurance based, mostly commercial, but insurance based. 
you know, we also have clients that we see in Philadelphia where, you know, is, is a little bit more cash pay and is a little bit more difficult to get services. So you can expand your horizons uh, through, through marketing efforts when it comes to pulling different clients from different parts of the states in which you're licensed. So that's, you know, one thing I would consider, but I do think it's important that, you know, don't, um, don't think that every barrier is something that you can just overcome through creativity. We are all about breaking down barriers. My God, the name of our podcast is The Barrier Breakdown. <laughs> but when it comes to, you know, accepting your your kind of the market and things that are un- out of your control, I think it, you would be remiss to think that you can just get beyond that, you know, by trying hard enough or doing the best marketing you can that you can get, you know, a whole bunch of, of cash pay clients in a, in a Medicaid population. The likelihood of that happening is not very high. You're going to have to look outside your, your world and your, your close sample, other states, multiple licensure types, which create other creativity issues of maintaining CEs to maintain those licensures, particularly if you're not a psychologist in SIPAC. But those are all great points. And I think, uh, yeah, I think it's an episode, an episode in of itself. I had a, had a, I feel like there's a, a lot of episodes of within themselves as we're doing this. Yeah. Um, so let's wrap it up because I know we are kind of going a little bit longer than normal. Um, and I think this is a really good question. And Kevin, I'm going to let you answer this because as a business owner, uh, this person is asking, how do you set aside time for education? Um, or how do you prioritize education um, and continued learning? Uh, as opposed to time seeing clients, so time away from seeing clients or time away from, you know, the administrative piece of running your business. So talk a little bit about how important, you know, that is in, in the boundaries. Yeah, I think part of the formula we talked about, you know, how many hours a week you have to work over how many months and what that looks like, you just got to build that time in. So here in Western PA, it's 30 hours, you're just going to have to build that in. But when I look at education uh, outside of organizing the time, which is kind of explained, you built, you kind of take a, a year view of that. And how do you plan it? Where do you want it? Go out and find those center, uh, the education CEs at a place like the CBI center for education.com, where we have a ton of things like anywhere from Dan Siegel. Uh, we had Sue Johnson in the past. We have four day intensives, but they're virtual, right? So you don't have to travel to and from. So the virtual education piece actually saves your time. Now you don't, you can schedule in training specific blocks without considering staying somewhere for the cost of a hotel, if, uh, uh, travel time. So, you know, think about, take, take a, year, a year perspective or two year perspective, because that in Pennsylvania, our reset is every two years. Is I obviously, if we have to do 30, so I'm gonna do 15 a year. How do I work that 15 in? What kind of blocks do I wanna do? Uh, can I lean heavily on virtual because that's most efficient for my time? And then, uh, and then what type of trainings do I want? I like meaningful trainings. That's going to change practice and specialize myself. I think that's part of my success. I always ask the question, why would I come see me as opposed to any other clinician? What separates me? And really getting not only trainings and certifications, but getting trainings and certifications that actually mean something, not just a, an extra letter because of, uh, let's just say it's, it's a, it's a, it's education, a CE program X that puts out versus that you completed it and give you a certification versus robust, where there's a real didactic approach to you learn academically, but then also get to support on your clinical uh, application and learn how to apply that efficaciously. I think that's important. So it's not uh, a participation, participation yeah. certificate. It's actually an ethical uh, requirement for just about all 
counselors, social workers, or psychologists. It's that using most evidence-based practice and being educated to use any one intervention. So I think it behooves them to actually do that. So that would be my suggestion to address that. Awesome, wonderful. Um, as always, you can email questions to Kevin and I directly. We will put our email um, in the tag on our YouTube channel uh, for the barrier breakdown. But just for anyone listening, it is Kevin Caridad, C-A-R-I-D-A-D dot cbi at gmail.com. Um, I will spare you the spelling of my last name <laughs> over the audio, but we'll go ahead and put it in, in the, uh, in, we'll put it online in our tags. So um, I think this was awesome, Kevin. I feel like there's so much more that we can share, you know, in more than just, you know, 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, we could probably do hours and hours and hours on, on all of the stuff that's in our brain that we've kind of, you know, I'll say this is fun. I think we should do a lot more of them. Maybe not as long so people don't lose their stamina uh, with listening. But I think, you know, five, 10 minute ones on a regular basis. Actually, I really enjoyed this. So thanks. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back with uh, scheduled guests in the future weeks. And we hope you all stay safe and healthy. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. Listeners can find all of our episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events, check out our website, cbicenterforeducation.com, our Facebook pages, Cognitive Behavior Institute, and CBI Center for Education, as well as our Instagram at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and our Twitter at CBI underscore Pittsburgh. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. We hope you'll tune in for another guest next week.